temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. WWL 105.3 FM HD2. Call us, will you? We're talking to a Deb Abibu from the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, 260-6368, if you're wanting to ask questions. Um, but just before we went to break, we were talking about the ecology and the benefits that oysters provide, not only to help rebuild our coastlines, um, but also to help create a healthier and beneficial environment for other living um, beings and organisms in the water. So she was just going to continue telling us about that. Yeah. Um, so, so really, the oysters are going to come full circle, you know, with this program. So, you know, harvesting oysters is an important part of our, our culture here. Louisiana provides a third of the nation's oysters, actually. Um, so. So a long time ago, restaurants may have had closer relationships with their fishermen and may have given that shell back directly. Um, some like Drago's still do that today, but there's a disconnect now where that shell that's, that's harvested is no longer returned to the water. We've become bigger and busier, so exactly. how do we do this? So through this recycling program, uh, restaurants um, sign up to join and, and they pay a fee. And we've worked out the fee to be on a sliding scale so that there's an incentive and a discount for a higher volume. And it's a tiered system. And we subsidize that with grants. So um, the cost of moving Shell Around is, uh, isn't, isn't cheap, but we make it affordable. And the restaurants just have to then separate the shell from the rest of their waste. And we provide them with designated bins, these purple bins um, that our recycling contractor, Phoenix Recycling, will drop off to them. And then the restaurants choose their own schedule for pickup. Most do five days a week. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Phoenix will come around and swap out a clean bin for the full bin of shell. So that also helps deal with any issues of smell or anything that you work about. We have frequent pickup and you get the bin clean, dropped off to right. you every time. So our restaurants will have between um, you know, one and 10 bins most of the time, depending on the volume that they do. Then the shell is transported down to a curing site. Right, in, so you're gonna walk me through this process. Yes, okay. in Buras, Louisiana. And that is where the shell will sit out in the open air and in the sunshine and the, the elements will break down any re residues left on the shell, any bacteria. And so why do, why do they need to do that? Why is that important before just using them? Yeah, good question. So we run the risk of, of fouling the water if we put unclean shell mm -hmm. right back into the water. So instead of larvae attaching to it, algae might grow on it mm -hmm. if it still has bits of food stuck on it. So that is to prevent any sort of transmission of, um, of disease and to make sure the cells are nice and clean 
surfaces for attachment. Right. Do you have to like turn them over like you do manure? You know what I'm saying? Like when you. Yeah. So currently, um, LDWF, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, helps us out by turning the shell piles with a front loader just to keep them rotated and aerated. Right. And then down in Bures is where our volunteers get involved. So we welcome uh, groups of volunteers or and individual volunteers. You can check for upcoming events at crcl.org. Um, we'll come in and shovel the shell into bags, and those bags make up the units of our future reefs. Okay. So it's a great way for the community to get involved in the program. Um, and then we plan reef sites uh, to deploy the material. Uh, we put our first in the water in November of 2016. It's already helping to protect the coastline. It's reduced the erosion rate by a half behind it. So how do you how do you measure this success? What things do you do after you've you know transplanted these oysters? Mm -hmm. How do you know what you're doing is making an impact? So um, we have a coastal scientist who is monitoring the performance of the reef, um, both by measuring the land behind it and changes in the profile of that shoreline and also physically taking out the oysters to look at them and to count the new growth and assess the size of the new oysters growing on them. So once the volunteers are there and they're distributing these oysters, you know, I mean, are y'all just dropping the sacks at the coastline, or is there a strategic effort to make sure that they do the best they're supposed to do? So we have a couple different methods. The first reef that we did was a half mile long. And it and where is it located again? It's in Biloxi Marsh, okay. which is near the mouth of the Mr. Go outlet. Um, this one we uh, Is we there a particular reason why you chose that site? It was because it was facing high erosion, and we knew that oysters grow, grew well there. And the Nature Conservancy had some other projects in the area, so they partnered with us okay. on that project. And that reef used gabion baskets, so those construction baskets. Mm -hmm. uh, the shell went into those, because <coughs> uh, that was a half mile long. We're also doing a community reef uh, in Poinashen with the Poinashen Indian tribe. And that one is going to be deployed by hand, so just stacking the bags, because it's a much smaller reef, and it's designed to protect a, a site that's really culturally important to mm -hmm. the tribe. Uh, so we have both methods. Okay. All right, so they're there, they're distributing the oysters. You know, is it is it done after they set it there? I mean, what happens after well, that? The great thing about oyster reefs is that they're self-maintaining. So unlike, uh, you know, a, a completely man-made structure, um, if placed in the proper environment, the oysters will grow and repair themselves and they can keep up with sea level rise. They can, they, they secrete like a calcium carbonate cement mm -hmm. uh, to attach to each other. So um, as long as it's protected from harvest and the environmental conditions have you know, remain favorable to oyster growth that should be self-maintaining. Okay, and um, how many oyster shells are being collected annually? Um, let's see, we have we have just crossed the line of um, over 4,000 tons collected total <laughs> since we started. Right. So uh, right now, each month, um, we're getting around 50 tons. Okay, and that's shell. coming from how many restaurants? So currently we have 19 restaurant partners, and um, 
and our restaurant partners are in the uh, the the greater New Orleans area and the restaurants that work with us are the ones that really prioritize Gulf seafood and seafood sustainability you know these are the ones that get it and whose patrons really care about not just where seafood is sourced from but you know what practices the restaurants because as you all know we get better quality food and seafood when we practice sustainability you know aspects in in our harvesting in our gardening you know Right. So Louisiana has, you know, amazing local shrimp, for example. It's hard to believe that there are so many that still import frozen shrimp from, you know, the other side of the world. And uh, while we could be supporting, you know, our own locals and in our own economy, um, and we know more about the sustainability of the practices that we use here uh, in the Gulf and that they are good sustainable practices. So Okay, so if you're a restaurant out there and you're <laughs> listening right now, Deb, what what are the steps involved in in becoming, you know, a restaurant that contributes to this and partners with this? So, um, so I would encourage interested restaurants to get in touch with uh, with me or one of my team members um, and uh, you can find our contact information at crcl.org and we will um, list out for you just what, what we need the restaurant partners to do and then give you an option. You get to select you know, the right number of bins and the right you know, price that's affordable for you. And, uh, and then we can start you know, as soon as we, we have an agreement for you know, how many bins you want, what frequency you want the pickups. Uh, and it's a monthly, um, you know, a monthly service. Um, and we also have been doing a lot more over the past year to promote our restaurant partners because, um, you know, we really value this as, as a beneficial relationship on both ends. So last year we hosted our first celebration. Yes. To tell me about that. Uh, to celebrate the successes of the oyster shell recycling program. You know, our first reef and all of the volunteers who have contributed so much. And we gave our, you know, our restaurant partners uh, a showcase, you know, where they had food available um, as well. So, uh, so be on the lookout in the spring. And we'll anybody can buy tickets to this. Yes. Okay. Um, I know about it, of course, because we've been working with CRCL, and we always help, um, you know, donate an an auction or a bidding item um, that you go around and write your name on, you know. But um, just want to make sure you all got that that it's shell abrasion and you can find it on CRCL's website and their and their Facebook page as it's coming up. What is the date for that? So we are currently looking at the end of May okay. and we will have that that date and venue finalized shortly. Okay. I went last year. It was held at Urban South. Do you know, know mm-hmm. if you'll be holding it at the same location? Possibly. Okay. I went last year, and it was so much fun. I mean, it actually is really incredible to see um, that many people come together for a great cause. And as I was reiterating before, um, when Deb came on, is, you know, New Orleanians have such a heart and soul into the food that they cook and they eat and they create that I really can't think of a better scenario than to give back um, to the industry that gives us 
are exceptional and extraordinary food. So um, Celebration is just an opportunity to help support your local community, help support you know your local seafood, your um, your local food community, and um, this is one of the reasons I wanted to showcase CRCL because they're doing amazing things um, in the community. The restaurants that contribute to the oyster shell recycling program are doing. Um, you know their part and so if you're a restaurant out there you know and you're interested in doing it I mean you call them up you get set up um, as a restaurant participating in it they bring you um, however many bins you need and now you know that once was a traditional practice of just giving oyster shells you know back to oyster farmers that went away from that now you can help re-practice that effort to get the oyster shells back to the coastlines so that they can really provide a, a beneficial aspect to our waters. Um, Deb, what other things can the restaurants or us as volunteers do um, to help continue these efforts? Um, you know, I would be aware that, you know, if you, if you love Louisiana seafood, you know, you have to care about the coastal land loss crisis and you have to care about coastal restoration. So, you know, I would, you know, encourage, you know, all, um, you know, folks who, who enjoy, you know, dining out in New Orleans to, um, you know, to, to sign up to volunteer and to, to make good choices, you know, when you are, um, you know, when you're shopping, when you're picking restaurants, you know, we also have um, a list of retail partners, you know, on our website, like Loft and Oysters, you know, who are, are doing the right thing. So, um, so I'd really, you know, encourage everyone to, um, to, to continue to push for, you know, coastal restoration projects. Um, and patronize these restaurants mm -hmm. that are doing the same things. Exactly. Right. Um, we have a caller, Stephen. I think I know Stephen's regular caller. If it's the same Stephen, yeah. Hello, I believe in oyster recycling, but why can't we add construction concrete recycling into that and maybe mix them in the bags and you have, you have a lot more construct or concrete construction out there than you do. Uh, so, I mean, you could double your efforts by just recycling concrete and mixing it with the oysters. Stephen, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I bet Deb does. Yeah, so um, so I know that crushed concrete is used by many oyster fishermen as colch. Um, it's a it's a good substitute, um, but my, my understanding of from the research is that oyster larvae do prefer to settle on the oyster shell uh, over other substrates like crushed concrete and limestone. Um, but that's not to say that it couldn't be mixed together. So, um, you know, right now we're not limited in volume. So if I didn't have enough shell to do a reef, you know, I'm, I could look into these other options. But, well, um, I don't know why they couldn't put the bags of concrete on the bottom and then at the top where they're, you know, would be in contact with oyster larvae. Um, they wouldn't be with the concrete, they would be with the oyster bags on top of it. Right. Yeah, so um, it's, 
for us, you know, our goal is to use the shell specifically, but certainly reefs can be made of many different materials. So when we talk about large-scale reefs used in restoration projects across the coast, that would be a great solution. The scale of the reefs that, you know, CRCL doing is going to fit our you know, our oyster shell recycling program, but we certainly advocate for more reefs, for bigger reefs to be put in. And, um, and there's some amazing technologies out there to say use concrete mixes that have, uh, that will attract oysters because they have other materials put in them. And, um, and those are the ones that could be scaled up. They could be preset with oyster spat. Right. You know, Stephen, I actually, um, you know, when we talked about um, my ceramic oyster shells on the show last, I actually do um, donate the discards that don't fire correctly to CRCL. And, and I have read, um, not with our um, local one with um, CRCL, <laughs> but with others who have used other mm-hmm. materials. And I think one of the issues comes up, and Deb, I don't know if you can elaborate on this, but Stephen, I think it's, it's logistics, you know, where um, who has it, how do you get it, how do you transport it? Obviously, concrete is extremely heavy. heavy, you know, and it's not to say that these things aren't possible, but there are definitely logistics involved in um, finding the contacts, you know, um, establishing, you know, the pickups, um, transporting the material, and then you know, does it have to be broken down? You know what I mean? Like, th- those are all things, like, we're well studied on oyster shells, but um, I think probably there's more to know about using other substrates. Yeah, and, and I know that some, uh, you know, some areas and projects have used, you know, like, uh, crushed concrete or, or recycled concrete for projects before. So I know that it, it can be used, but there's different regulations in each area about you know, what you're putting into the water. Right. I think that's a really good question, Stephen. So I wonder just if there's maybe more research out there that needs to be done about using these other materials and it just hasn't been yet. Um, you know, I think it depends on like this, the scale of, of what you're doing and the, you know, the environment that you're putting it in. And, you know, if the conditions are right, you know, I've heard of oysters growing on, you know, discarded toilets <laughs> right. ended up in the water. Right. Um, so getting that substrate there is certainly an important part of it. But, um, you know, it, if the, the, you know, the goals are our, of our program are to um, prevent this specific type of waste from ending yes. up in the landfill. Right. Uh, so, so I think that that, you know, recycled concrete can work in many contexts, but it might be up to an individual, you know, planner of a different reef, like what materials they use. Right. That makes sense. Thank you so much for a really good question, Stephen. Um, so if you're just tuning in with us, um, you know, we're about ready to wrap up with Deb Abibu from the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, but she's told us, you know, about a really great project um, with recycling oyster shells. And Stephen asked a really good question because that's kind of where I was going to go next is what other, you know, materials can we use? And I think we've answered that question. Um, but because we have such an immense um, resource here and the ability to recycle oyster shells, which, you know, they, they used to do before we became bigger and busier and just started discarding them. I think that this is a great opportunity for restaurants to take advantage of that. 
Um, again, they have um, a celebration coming up. The, the date um, and the times aren't specifically nailed down, um, but I'm going to go. I know mm-hmm. that for sure. And, um, you know, you can check it out online um, and look for it on their website and their Facebook page. And, Deb, I just want to um, thank you so much because I think it's an incredible resource. I think it's excellent for all of us to know who are so invested in our in our food Um, and the culinary industry locally, that we understand about what's going on, where our food is sourced from, and how it's sourced, and how our waters are taken care of. You know, we have ample seafood in the area, and we need to know not only for our own edification, but for our our contribution and participation um, to know what we can do to give back. So thank you so much for coming today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. Um, You can stick around. Okay. Um, We're going to jump to break, and when we get back... I have one of my favorite people, Dan Robert from the, he's chuckling, Dan Robert from the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. But we always have an awesome time. So I'm really looking forward to sharing um, what he has going on at the museum with you. And we're going to chat soon. We'll see you back here in just a few minutes. <laughs> Logan is entertaining me here. He knows I love this. I don't know. Maybe a part of me aspires uh, to be that level of. Um, witchery or wizardry that she was you know she used to always play um jokes on her husband um because he never wanted her showing off her witchcraft um but we're just rolling right along and i've got my next guest um whenever we're together we always have a good time but first i want to tell you how i met dan you know i was explaining at the beginning of the show that uh my husband and i were doing staycations where we in the city where we just eat and drink our way around the city and do other activities. Um, And one day, uh, we decided to stroll into the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. If you all have not been, shame on you. It is a treasure. It is a treasure trove of the most spectacular. And again, I told you I'm a a history nerd and I'm a food nerd. And I, I don't know, maybe it was because I had two small children my head was just spinning with raising them that I didn't get out of I didn't start getting out of the house till um a year ago or so but it it is spectacular it has some incredible exhibits it portrays um hundreds of years of food history not only from New Orleans but but from the south um some incredible exhibits and we strolled in there one afternoon and we got a drink next door at the bar and just walked around in complete awe. And initially, the conversation was just, um, you know, hey, this is a really cool place. You all, I mean, we didn't even know at this point that they did cooking demonstrations, okay? Um, and so we just got a card and we emailed. So we did our first cooking demonstration. We did it in October. And um, another lady was supposed to um, be there from the staff um, helping guide us along. But there stood Dan. (laughs) And he was so kind and so entertaining and just really helped um, build confidence in us. Because, again, I told you, we've been cooking for a while. Um, But this was our first, like, live demonstration. He encouraged us. He told us, don't worry if no one shows up. Um, it's your first time. You'll get more people. Now, we did end up getting eight people. Um, but he was, if you all know um, the movie, The Greatest Showman, he was seriously the greatest showman. And um, I have learned so much from him. 
And so I want him to tell you about what he has been doing. Um, But first, I want to tell you a bit about him. He is the curator of the meat science program for the museum, where he teaches, educates, and demonstrates through classes his 45 years of experience, um, which he acquired from growing up on a family farm that owned and operated a meat processing plant. Dan has been through it all from a very young age with procurement of quality livestock, harvesting and processing from cattle and hog pens to the smokehouse. He has a degree in food science that he used in his 25 years with the USDA as a food inspector and meat grader. So the point is, recapping his credentials, this man knows meat. So if you're having, you know, any particular um, ideas come across where you're wanting to know about um, making any particular thing, which Dan's going to tell you about the classes that he's done and is doing, Dan's going to have the answer. And if he doesn't, he'll probably make it up. Um, But from 45 years in the business, he has about every answer there is swimming around in his head. Dan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, could you give us just a little bit more background about your and your family's history in the business of meat processing? Allie, um, it goes way back. It goes back 93 years, in fact. Um, I'm fourth generation meat processor in my family. Uh, started with my great grandfather. Uh, we were heavily involved in the meat industry. <clears throat> we had two harvesting plants. We talked about that. Yes. That sounds less... Yes, it has more finesse. A little more finesse than this and that. Uh, But we were in business a lot of years, and uh, yes, I started from a very early age. Um, So what were the first things you were taught to do, and how old were you? uh, Actually, you know, I was talking to my mother last night on the phone. She's 86 years old, and... uh, I said, well, you know, I've been doing this 45 years. She said, no, you've been doing it 50 years. <laughs> that said, five well, extra years remember, makes I, a I difference. I can't even remember back that far, you know. And uh, she started, when you were a little boy, uh, about five years old, you were in the plant, running around, doing whatever to be done, cleaning the holding pens or, you know, folding hides or, oh, God. or doing this. Or My son's four clean, years old. Clean, i got to start teaching him to do some more stuff. smoke houses or, you know, clean the cure tanks or whatever. What, whatever a little guy could do back in those days. Um, and then, of course, my father, um, you know, I, as I matured, um, you know, my work got a little more involved. Mm-hmm. And you start out with uh, buying livestock buying cattle, buying hogs, lambs. You excel into that, then you go into the harvest end of it because as a meat processor, we have to know that animal all different ways, just not the confirmation of what he looks like, you know, what... uh, What What to look for. What the end product's going to be, you know. And it takes a lot of skill to do that, you know. Uh, and then as I progressed, uh, went into uh, uh, further processing, sausage making, heat thermal products, um, and then went from there. And of course, when I went to college, I got my studies done. Uh, after grad school, I took a internship 
with uh, Iowa beef processors, uh, IBP. Some of your callers or some of your audience may know, of course, they're owned by Tyson Food now, but they were the largest meat packer in, in the world at that time, which they are still one of the largest now. And I had an internship in Emporia, Kansas, complex, and Dakota wow. City, Nebraska complex, which was the, the flagship plant, the, the corporate plant of the 13 beef facilities that they ran. And I was there uh, for a year. Uh, this is a very large scale operation. Uh, that time they had 4,000 employees, two shifts they ran. So I learned every, I was in the harvest division. And so from the stockyards all the way to the sales cooler with the carcass cooler, everything in that division of that plant, I had, I had to learn every job. Imagine you learned that getting your hands dirty. Oh, yes. I never will. That, I'll never forget that experience as long as I live. And so um, I returned back to the university, and um, I had four job offers, and I selected the uh, USDA, which I was in meat inspection, food safety inspection service. And about eight years later, I got promoted into meat grading and certification branch, where I spent 25 years, okay. 25 years total. Wow. Uh, and it, um, you know, you think back and it just seemed like, you know, it was just a snap of a finger. It just went by so quick. And um, uh, I've had the opportunity to be, I was 80% national travel. So I was a week here, week here, you know, wherever they sent me, I was at right. several plants. But I've had the opportunity to be in over 700 federally inspected meat and poultry plants wow. in the nation. So you get to learn. For every place you go, you got to learn a little bit. Right. So what are we? Out. What are we, what are some valuable takeaways um, from from that position as an inspector and a meat crater that helps you, um, you know, make decisions and understand about quality livestock. Well, uh, the skills I've learned uh, throughout the years, uh, you know, with food safety inspection service, uh, is pathology and animals, you know, uh, uh, and uh, sanitation, food safety, which is number one priority. I mean, it's food safety is number one priority right now in the in the meat business, you know, and. Uh, in, in, in meat grading and certification branch, what we done, um, we were the ones that actually graded the carcasses, you know, beef, lamb, and veal, you know, prime choice select. We made that determination of, you know, several different factors, and I could go on two hours about that, probably bore you to death. <laughs> but, um, well, I want to know how, how that translates to quality food. Well, the decision we made on a carcass, uh, a yield grade and a quality grade on a carcass, um, depended on how we graded that carcass, is depend on how much that plant could sell that meat for. Right. You see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. if, if, if I graded uh, a beef carcass select and it was prime, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, they would definitely lose money. Right. You know? So we... we the, the, we were the ones between the plant and the consumer. Our job was to make sure the consumer 
when we graded that animal or that carcass, that if you bought choice beef, you get choice. Mm -hmm. You don't get select. Right. Or you don't get commercial. You get choice. That's That was our, our main goal. So you've yeah. taken these five decades of experience and you found your way to the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Well, after I uh, left the USDA uh, 25 years, um, I said, well, you know, uh, we we're, we farm, you know, my family. We raise sugar cane, and we're in the cattle business as well. And I said, well, I'll get involved in that, and uh, I'll kind of take it easy and, you know, fish and do this and that. Well, that lasted about six months. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was bouncing off the walls. I said, uh, I mean, you've been in the meat industry that long. You can't just stop it. I mean, you just can't stop. You know? And... I said, well, uh, then I started doing a lot of consultant work, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, and I specialize in small to medium-sized plants, which right now I've got 22 plants that I do consultant work in five states. Um, and a lot of the factors I do in that is HACCP uh, design, uh, new plant uh, 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 construction, training, sausage makers, training you know, harvest floor uh, help, dealing with plant management, dealing with the USDA, building a new relationship between a new plant owner and the USDA, stuff like that, label approvals uh, for new product and uh, R&D as far as uh, uh, new product development and which this and that. But um, I had, uh, I was very familiar with the USDA, with Southern Food and Beverage. In fact, when they were at the Riverwalk, the, the old location. I was a member of that. But I could hardly ever go there because I worked all the time. I was mm -hmm. out of town all the time. So I said, well, um, let me go back over there and, and look around this and that. And uh, I contacted Miss Liz Williams and Jill Benson, you know, Mr. Mm -hmm. And told him who I was and uh, told him my background. And I said, and I seen where a meat science program would, is, would, is needed there. Mm -hmm. That could have been very useful there and this and that. And it started out just doing demos. Um, I think the first thing I've done, I made bratwurst one time. And uh, there were quite a few people there. And um, uh, then kind of made it, I had another demo come up and this and that. And then I said, well, look, Ms. Liz said, well, why don't you start teaching classes on this? So I said, well, I did. And <laughs> they've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Every it's time. taken off is what he it's doesn't want to tell you. I mean, They're it, it's just, packed houses. Yes, and is. he just started doing it this fall. Do I understand that correctly? That's, this past fall. Right. So <clears throat> your experience, you know, in the industry you know, helps you understand um, processing and harvesting. But how do you learn to cook? How do you learn to make, you know, these different products? Do you, did you learn from your mother? One of the well, things that we talked about at the beginning of the show was, who did you learn to cook from? Well, any good Louisiana boy learned to cook from the mom. You know that. <laughs> I mean, and the dad. That's just given. Like that. Now, you, listen, y'all hear that? Remember, I told you, you know? from Kansas, I learned from my mother. I did not learn from my father. So I'm interested in you in you well, telling me this. Well, uh, you know, I come from uh, a big family of excellent, okay. excellent okay. cooks. And uh, as far as 
uh, in the meat industry, uh, say sausage, you know, heat thermal products or fresh sausage or whatever. Dan, um, I think we have a caller, and I want to I want to tune in to the okay, caller. Mm -hmm. Chef Andrea. Hey. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are yes, you? Yes, I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Great. Can't complain. How's it going? Unbelievable, beautiful, outstanding. It's Friday, and uh, we have a lot of bountiful, as you know, Lent. We have, uh, you know, during the year, all year round, we have a lot of fresh fish thrown to our door. Especially right now with also all the rain, they come all in the back door, swim in the canal. Right. And I get my fish fresh whole so I can check the ice and check the gill to let them in. So we have some beautiful pampano, uh, beautiful, I call the king of the sea. And then also we have Dovasol. Dovasol is the queen of the sea. Not too many yes. restaurants has Dovasols. I've been serving that for many, many years. It's the healthiest fish you can get. Then we have flounder. We have some beautiful uh, poppy drum. We have some beautiful red snapper. We have salmon. We have yellowfin tuna. It's Lent, and uh, besides that, we serve fresh fish all the time. And you can get, today is Friday, but every day of the week you can get fresh fish. Lunch and dinner, we open seven days a week, as you know. For lunch and dinner, we did a great job, very reasonable. All, all the um, wonderful gets uh, potato vegetable on the plate with a sauce, and uh, so you can order for affordable. Well, Chef, price. I have to tell you, my yeah. husband and I came for date night a few weeks ago. Oh for happy God. hour, <laughs> we uh, we were we were in a hurry because we were waiting. Um, you know, my mother was watching the kids, so we only had yeah. a couple of hours. So we were trying to indulge in in each other. But yeah. I didn't get an opportunity to say hello. Um, but the bartenders <laughs> were fantastic. Oh, good. We actually ran into somebody I know. You know, um, y'all know Tom talks about this. Uh, there's only 500 people in New Orleans, <laughs> even though there's hundreds of thousands there's only 500 people in new orleans right. and we ended up running into somebody we knew we had a great time we had great Wonderful. drinks we had um you know some really delicious appetizers yeah. and you know it was very hospitable it was such a right. hospitable um wow. environment right. and i just i i'm so glad you called so we could well, talk about you. that um so no it's very wonderful about 10 years ago i had the idea about do a uh, piano bar and uh, also Something that a small plate people can afford for lunch. Uh, you can have a nice, wonderful evening that you don't have to spend the money, or you can have just some small plate. You can get, come to Capri Blue Lounge and have a nice, wonderful, great appetizer we call small plate, and uh, with a glass of wine, you can get out of here less than you know fifteen, twenty dollars. So it's really a very affordable. But also, it came nice and beautiful. The weekend we have live music. Tonight we have a Bobby Holler, which is a great, great uh, gentleman. He does a wonderful job. Uh, well, I'm excited to hear that because it's date night again for me and my husband. And, uh -huh. you know, we live over there in Old Metairie. So um, as soon as I wrap up, I think I might come um, see you all for dinner and a yeah. drink. So thank yeah. you so much. Um, you and I'll say hi he this time. For entertainment. He does a wonderful job entertaining. You know, so he's one of the best in the city. You used to have his own band, and uh, he, he's playing a lot with the uh, Ronnie Cole, we still make it, right. uh, we still do get together for every year, Jackson and Bayou, which is a wonderful charity I've been doing for years and years, but over 30 years now. Yeah. And uh, he used to play with um, uh, uh, Ronnie Cole, and he still play with Ronnie Cole. We do this wonderful Jackson and Bayou, which we're going on right now. Uh, next couple of weeks is going to be a nice affair over there on a chateau that Ronnie Cole runs right on the bayou. So 
Well, that really sounds like a lot of exciting, a lot of exciting stuff. Hello. So when I, if I stop in um, tonight yeah. on my way home, I'll say hello this time. Yes, Perfect. Do. Thank That's you so much. I look forward to talking to you, and yeah. uh, thank you so much for uh, giving my best regard to Tom, Marianne. Yes, I and will. And all the people at the stage, they're so nice to me. And uh, this is Andrea, and uh, my phone number is 834-8583. We say ciao. Grazie. Ciao, baby. Thank you. Ciao, bella, and we'll grazie. come back um, from ciao, break and talk, more, uh, and talk more with Dan. Thank you so much. Da, 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 da. Ba, ba, da, da, da. It's 105.3 FM HD2. Logan, you are my man. They have been asking, um, they have been asking, you know, what songs we like to play when the different guest hosts come on. Uh, this is from my my four-year-old son is obsessed with dinosaurs. Um, as I guess most um, you know, toddler young boys are. But do y'all remember uh, the dinosaur movie We're Back? And it features John Goodman as the Tyrannosaurus Rex and he sings this little ditty. But um, we're back with Dan Robert, uh, the curator of the Meat Science Program from the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. He just shared with us his 50-plus years in the food um, meat processing, um, USDA uh, inspector, meat grading professional career. And now we're talking about um, the classes that he is teaching at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Dan, uh, give us a little bit of what classes you've taught and then I want to know where you learned, um, you know, how to cook what you're cooking from the different classes you've done. Well, <clears throat> you mean how I learned to prepare these yes. items or this or that? Well, well, the fact that, you know, fourth generation, you know, doing this and 700 meat plants that I've had the opportunity to be in. But I really have to credit in the sausage end of it and cured meats end of it. There's one individual... Um, which happens to be a board member uh, at, at Southern Food and Beverage. His name is Mr. Ed Woods. Okay. He's the president of Woods Smoked Meats in Bowling Green, Missouri. Um, me and Ed go back 30 years. Uh, Ed has won more international, national, and state awards through the American Association of Meat Processors and Missouri Association of Meat Processors um, and the international group than anybody in the nation. So he's taught you a lot. He's, there's, he's one of the top 3% processors in the U.S. Uh, in fact, he just got uh, uh, nominated and elected in to the Meat Industry Hall of Fame last year in Atlanta uh, there went four inductees, um, the head of Tyson Fresh Meats, uh, the head of Hormel, one was in National Beef, and then Wood Smoke Meats. Okay, so these classes that you've taught, mm -hmm. tell me about them. Tell me what you've offered okay. so far. The, the way we've done this, and, and uh, you know, when I started this fall, I, I, I kind of, I had to wait till I, and I've been very lucky to have really good sponsors that have donated some very, very nice equipment for me to um, use to produce these items. The first class was a country ham class, if you mm -hmm. remember. Mm -hmm. The old time country hams, you know, where we do that, hang them, you know, for nine months. I've done that, let's see, we had the country ham class, 
Then we had the Bacon class. You remember that? Yes. The Bacon class. That was a really big success. And then... You did Undoey. Or, no, no, you no, did no. Boudin. Boudin. Mm-hmm. The Boudin class... It was packed, sold, y'all. Completely sold out. Completely sold out. Uh, you remember Paul Fontenot from mm-hmm. Paul's Meat Market and Grocery at Beer Platt came and helped me with that. We made the uh, pork Boudin and then the crawfish Boudin. And y'all, just so you know, they, they are as skilled in making the products as they are entertainers it is a spectacular time again you can you can get drinks from next door you come in you learn a great craft and you have a good time because they're out there they're up there putting on a show so after the boudin we had uh, which was last sunday last sunday was the on dewey and tasso class and that was a sellout yes um I, I ask, I'm getting at the point, I'm asking the students that come to classes, what do you want next? What do you want next? You ain't going to believe what this next class is. Next Tell month, me. Which is on the uh, April the 14th. Okay. Tell us how we can get tickets at the... You can go to our website, Southern Food and Beverage Museum. You can buy them online. Okay. It's uh, the 14th of April? 14th of April. Uh, what time does it start? From one to three. Okay. And, and you also, need that amount of time, y'all, because you're exactly. learning something new here and you're drinking. So y'all know everything you're drinking, you're having a good time. This class here might be about 3.30 getting, getting over with. Okay. But um, what are you going to teach them to do? It's going to be fromage de terre cochon. Yes. You know what that is? Hogshead. Hogshead cheese. cheese. Sound a lot better than hogshead cheese. Yes, it does. So anyway, there's going to be three different things I'm going to do with this. And the and there's not really categorized but there is a difference and some of your listeners listeners will know ex- exactly what I'm talking about so I'm going to show you three different things the New Orleans style of hogshead cheese uh-huh. and the Cajun and Creole version of it now there, there's, there's a, a difference. difference I don't there's know him but Dan's going to tell us and then I had a phone call two days ago and they said is there any way you could put it with one of my students and it can be pronounced two ways. Dob glacé. That's the old New Orleans classic. Uh-huh. And a lot of your listeners are going to know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. It's, all, you, it's, all, it's almost extinct. You just very rarely see it anymore at all. So there's going to be three different things. Tell us what the three are again. The traditional. The traditional, the, the uh, uh, Cajun and the Creole uh-huh. uh, version of uh, Fromage de Tête. And then the New Orleans style, mm-hmm. which is a tad different mm-hmm. now. And then the uh, Dove Glacé, okay. that'll be on the end. Okay. Well, because we have about a minute and a half left, I mm-hmm. want to get into the last item, uh, exciting item. It really exciting. That they're um, opening up. It's called the Gumbo Garden. Dan, tell us about the Gumbo Garden. We got about a minute and a half. Or so. Four years in the making. We finally are getting that. It's a gorgeous outdoor the, space. The Gumbo Garden uh, is, is, for you folks that have been to the museum, uh, right outside the Rouse Jenner Innovative Kitchen, uh, the, the outside, we've got a 68-foot slab port. We have a cover over that now, mm-hmm. a hard cover. Uh, we have a Carolina pit, barbecue pit, that, that uh, brick pit, that is built historically correct. Right. Then we have a uh, very expensive donated 
uh, uh, mobile cooker, uh, barbecue pit. Right. That'll be pushed up under there. It, it, it's the landscapers are coming. We're, we're we're having a cleanup day next Saturday. It's going to be. I can't tell you how good this. It's going to be fabulous, y'all. We'll we have, have run out of time because we have absolutely. talked about spectacular topics. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I love being here with you guys. Good night. Go eat something good. Ali, thank you. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.